listening to Finding Your Genius Zone with Dirk Nouvelle. It's not just a job. It's not just a paycheck. Or at least it doesn't have to be. With the help of experts across industries, Dirk helps you find your passion and career, as well as exposing the unknown parts of every vocation. Let's go deep. Let's find your genius zone right now. Here's Dirk Nivelle. Everybody, this is Dirk. Welcome to the show. I uh, On with me today is uh, someone I've been really excited to interview for a while. His name is Drew Merklinghouse. And I'm going to flip it to Drew here in a second, but I wanted to do a quick introduction. You know, you know, when you're growing up, you always have these people that are kind of heroes and you look up to. And when I was in elementary, junior high school, I was fortunate enough to uh, have the ability to go to ski school. And Drew was one of those guys who actually founded the ski school. And I was uh, lucky enough to kind of learn how to ski. I was a freestyler. Drew was one of the best in the in the world. He was ranked. And at the time, you didn't really realize what you had. And as I've gotten older, I look back on those nights at Ski Acres, just trying to chase him and crack down Bonanza. And, I, and at the time, I mean, we had a busload of students and probably six or seven instructors who were some of the best in the world. And uh, anyway, I, over the years, stayed in touch with Drew and, you know, you know, at when I was a kid, he was, you know, felt way older, but now we've become really close. And I talked to Drew a lot and I've always watched his life from afar and what he's done with his family. And I've always been super impressed. So I wanted to have him on because I think he's got a lot of gold to share in terms of lifestyle, in terms of careers, and really just kind of staying true to your zone of genius. Because I even though he's done different things, he's always kind of been consistent in the environment he works in. So enough of me talking. Drew, welcome. Hey, Dirk. It's so good to see you. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Uh, this is wonderful. You look great and uh, you sound great. Uh, you know, it's funny that you mention how we met uh, because at the time I was a I was a World Cup. Uh, freestyle skier. I had skied. I skied for a year on the PFA World Trophy Tour, which again was the world stage. And then I got onto the World Cup for two or three years after that. But I would come back intermittently during the course of the winter and and take you young guys on. And uh, in that environment, you you were one of the real badasses that that came out of skiing unlimited. An excellent an excellent skier. Uh, de- definitely one of the best, and we 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 nurtured a few national championship, a, a few national champions out of that that group. Uh, so those were the good old days, and it's it's cool that you're introducing me, uh, kind of in a reference of skiing, because I'm looking at the poster behind you, finding your zone of genius, you know. And I don't think skiing is really a zone of genius, but probably when you're reflecting on my career. So much of it is always going to be aimed right back at this thing that I started doing when I was three years old. And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe I could just start with a quick little background on, on my life. Uh, and you'll see what a, what, a, what a role and what an influence skiing played. And I, today, just so you know, uh, I'm 66 years old. I am just walking in from skiing. Uh, I live in Sun Valley, Idaho. Uh, it is March 30th, and I am skiing literally thigh deep powder out there. It's super unusual. It was a, an epic day of skiing, just a blast. And uh, 
So, so, you know, one of the things that I do here today now at my age, uh, I'm a ski instructor here in Sun Valley. I'm actually the technical manager or uh, the technical director for Sun Valley Snow Sports. So I I, I do a lot with the training here, uh, hiring new instructors, and I also do a lot of private lesson work. And what I tell, especially young people that come out and get a ski lesson from me, um, it, you know, you get these wealthy families and kids that are entitled and a little bit spoiled. And, and I just want them to know what a special experience it is to be able to enjoy the outdoors in this mountain community here in Idaho. So what I do is I tell them the story. I say, you know, um, when I was your age, actually, I was a little younger. I was about four years old at the time. My dad gave me a gift. And, and I didn't know how important that gift was at that time. But today, I am grateful for it every day. He gave me the gift of skiing. Uh, he introduced me to the sport when we were skiing on long wood skis and leather boots. And I grew up every weekend kind of inundated with the smell of wet leather and wool. Uh, you know, and you, if you remember at Ski Acres, that, that brown bag room, just uh, the feel and the vibe of what it was to go up there and enjoy uh, the, the mountains and, and this wonderful uh, sport that we share called skiing. Anyway, so I um, I got fortunate enough, I was good at it, and I could ski uh, ski competitively at a very high level, at an elite level. And um, I was fortunate enough to be paid to do it, and, and I was able to travel around the world. I skied all over Europe and Canada and all of North America. Uh, I would often log in more than 100 days of skiing during the course of the winter. Um, and that's what I did as a kid. That's what I did during college. A lot of times, and you mentioned the name, uh, you would chase Drew and Crack. Crack would be Paul Arnson. He's my business partner. We'll talk about the role that he played in my early life uh, as I took my skiing career and took it into apparel. Uh, but, you know, chasing us around, um, you know, what, what, what Crack and I called these years, we called it the School of Hard Knocks. That was our college. Uh, you know, we we spent it traveling on the World Cup. And um, so, you know, that's kind of phase one. You know, phase one was uh, I in high school. One of the things that I really wanted to do is I wanted to become a ski instructor. Uh, I did that and I got certified. Uh, from there, I became a competitive freestyle skier. And um, the, the competition years were kind of phase two. Uh, but maybe where that my my career took kind of a turn, which is why I maybe am sitting here with you today, how we can just really capture the essence of what it is to pursue a career or a pathway and how important it is, especially when you're young, uh, to say, am I pursuing the right path or is this a waste of my time or I do I need more education? Um, but it kind of landed in my lap uh, because I had a skill set of skiing, uh, and this gentleman, Paul Arnson, and I were such good friends from high school. We started a ski wear company, and uh, we had enough on the ball. He was very, very creative. He's an excellent designer, and I have a, a kind of an organiza organizational mentality inside of me. So, so we teamed up as partners. There was actually a third partner, Mike Black, as well. And uh, we started a ski work company, and it was a little bit like being in a garage band. 
uh, we we would work hard at it every day and uh, we would ski a lot and windsurf a lot. But ultimately, what we were doing was we were like mad scientists in a laboratory crafting and creating uh, cool ideas uh, in a sport that was really in its infancy, which was freestyle skiing. We were uh, designing ski wear that fit better and that 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 flexed better and that looked better uh, because this sport is a judged sport you know you're you're skiing down to impress people so uh you you just couldn't find outfits uh, maybe flashy enough and wild enough but uh, uh the the sport of, of freestyle really ushered in kind of a, a generation of ski clothing that i i think we probably helped to influence what what it looks like today the bright colors and uh, the nice fitting and so forth real quick i want to jump in because i i by the way i had crack on a earlier podcast so you can look him up as well um it is really interesting because i love like aviator nation is a, a an apparel company that pretty much i think copied you guys so breezen back in the day if you were super cool if you had a breezen pullover which was three stripes you know and some of them were one-piece suits for skiing but like i feel like you guys were like so ahead of the curve and not only the comfort and you know like when you're doing um crazy uh aerials and you need to stretch your arm if you're doing a helicopter you know you always did never felt constricted but the look of it um is like if you look around today i mean marine layer aviator nation i mean you see that that whole breeze and look all the time so you kind of have to laugh a little bit because i think you guys were the ones who started that it, true, you know, Aviator Nation is a is a really cool brand, and and they they absolutely knocked off a lot of the designs that we were doing back in the late seventies and early eighties. Uh, we've been we've been, of course, getting your 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 designs copied is the the probably the greatest form of flattery when you're in the apparel business, and so uh, we I don't mind it at all. I think it's a compliment. Um, it was funny to see. Uh, another company that I started called Heat Sportswear, another very hot, flashy, fun company. Um, we were getting knocked off by Prada. And that was just like a year ago, you know, and I'm looking at these happy camper shirts and these Mr. Heat shirts and uh, popping up in their line. Uh, so anyway, we this 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 apparel thing. Um, you're right, Dirk. You know, we would take and we actually did everything soup to nuts. Um, we didn't know any better other than to just take something apart and figure out how it was built and start building them ourselves. We were actually, uh, we had a cutting table. We would take fabric and we would build patterns. Uh, we learned how to grade patterns. Uh, and we had a very unique, eventually a very unique retail shop. But when we learned how to actually make a garment, we started to study how the sleeve is connected to the body. And we thought if we could adjust the shape of these curves, we could get the sleeve so you could get your hands over your head up and down without really disrupting the look of the garment. So there was a lot of really inventive, creative things. We called it a rocker sleeve. If you remember the pullover that you discussed, it had a side zip on it. And that was kind of unheard of. We it, it, it's it's kind of weird to say that we invented it, but it became very very um, industry standard to put zippers on the side of these pullovers or these anorak jackets. Uh, and the purpose of that was, as we again, we wanted the fit to be right, and for that thing to actually get over your head and down on your body, uh, it would be a big baggy, you know, gunny sack. So that's why we incorporated that side zip so we get a nice trim look. 
Uh, anyway, yep. we're bouncing around a lot. Um, after years of cooking like this, we were actually making ski suits for people like you. Uh, people would come around and we were starting to outfit ski schools and the ski patrol. Uh, we were starting to sponsor some of the best athletes in the world in our product. And then something magical happened. Uh, it just clicked. It got popular. Our look became uh, something that was very, very desirable. I keep waiting yeah. for my look to become desirable. So <laughs> I don't know if you have any advice on that. Let me know. Well, we, we know what's right for you. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, Dirk, I, what I'm kind of thinking is, you know, we could use you as a model. You know? and, uh, There's a niche for me, buddy. Five, nine to five, ten. Right. There's mm -hmm. I think I'm big in Brussels or Belgium, somewhere there, I was told it's a big deal. Hey, so this is perfect. You don't have to feel like, this is exactly, just let me interject. This is exactly what I, people are listening. And and what I'm tuning into, Drew, is is just like, this is this is something you've always had passion on and and you've stayed true to it. And and by the way, I mean, you're talking about different multiple skill sets, like launching an apparel company, the creativity, uh, the, the business savvy, the marketing. I mean, there's a lot of skill sets involved. And it was always interesting to me is you guys did it all really well. And sometimes someone who's really good at the creative isn't good at the business side of it, but you did it all. But I think people, I want them to pay attention to, you know, Drew was passionate about skiing from day one and it's carried with him in every uh, chapter of his life. So keep going. Okay. And, and you know, there, there's something about competing uh, in sports as you know you you competed a lot as a kid growing up uh, you were a very accomplished athlete uh, that that element inside of you uh, becomes one of your best resources when you put put it into the business uh, put it into the business community and you mentioned that I've got a kind of a business mind and I've also got a marketing mind. Uh, before we're done with the podcast today, I hope I'm able to share how I've been able to use, let's say that uh, kind of business sense and that capacity I have for marketing and what I've done for the Sun Valley Snow Sports here uh, by, by taking a completely different approach. But anyway, we'll, we'll save that for the end. That, let's let that be a teaser. I'll, I'll summarize what it is that I'm doing now and how I'm able to tap into the skill set and um, you know, the, the things that I've learned along the way. And by the way, when you talk about those things, I also would appreciate it if you could touch on how it makes you show up to your, your wife, Leah, your kids, like how it affects your joy, your happiness. I mean, I feel like every time around you, you're in your flow and you're just a better version of yourself versus someone who's stuck in a job they hate. Because I think that's really important to like see here with yeah. Drew because because he's just, I don't know, the energy is always off. It means amazing, right? And I think I look at it and like, I want some of that. So, well, you know, and, and again, we're going to, when you're, when you're tapping into Drew and you're, you're seeing a passion and energy and a kind of a love for life. And, uh, you know, th there are some things that are super important anchors that there are just things. Um, that I will touch on accomplishments and highs and lows, uh, but behind the scene, there's a couple of things. Okay, you mentioned Leah. That's my wife. Um, we'll have been married 37 years next month. 
And I mean, I don't know where 37 years came and went, but we've raised kids. Um, we've got grandkids now. You know, and I was telling one of my kids, Nate, uh, that, that I'm going to do a podcast with you today. And he goes, well, if you're going to be honest with Dirk, you're going to tell him the real, re the real deal. A, Drew, Drew hates work. Okay. Uh, Drew loves money. Um, all I want to do is retire in my life. So I married this super hot supermodel chick and <laughs> she's incredible. You know, she can literally run a chainsaw in lingerie. And uh, uh, she, she has been such an important piece of the success. So, so maybe when we're finding our zone of genius, uh, don't forget those outside influences, friends, family. Uh, and when, when you can have a partnership like the one I have with my wife, we're madly in love with each other. Uh, it is absolutely a marriage that will survive and last forever. And you and Michelle are the same thing. Dirk, you guys have this um, kind of iconic relationship. Uh, she's, she's a beautiful woman. Um, there, there's something extremely important uh, in a relationship like that. Raising yeah. kids. Don't you think? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I love where you're going on this and Leah is uh, amazing. It's also like, think about it, Drew, like you and I grew up, did you go, you went to Interlake or Bellevue High? Bellevue High. Oh yeah. So, you know, we were both, we had a lot of friends, we played sports, you know, there's a lot of adults who maybe don't have a lot of people to lean on. Right. And I always think you are who you hang out with. Um, it, it influences who you become. So one of the challenges is you and I were lucky enough to, you know, marry, marry up. We definitely married up, but have great people around us that help, you know, shape and form us. Um, this podcast, you know, for people that don't have access to people, I hope this helps just give you a little bit of insight, but also my advice, and maybe you can touch on this, is how crucial it is to, when you're doubting or you're frustrated on what you want to do, reach out to people that you love, that you trust, that you know, care about you. Cause sometimes that's a really good backdrop or a, you know, a mirror of a direction you should go in, even asking them what you think I should do. I think you and I are who we are today to some extent by who we've been with along the years. So anyways, again, I keep going back to that 25 year old kid coming out of school and like, I don't know what the heck I want to do. I think I want to be in apparel, but I don't know. I think being around the right people is certainly yeah. important. And, and Dirk, you just don't underestimate the value of community. And, and, and if people are tapping into finding your zone of genius through this podcast, they can reach you from you. They can reach me. Um, I'm happy to take an email, take a call, talk to somebody personally. Um, it, it, it is super underestimated, the value of friends. When you think about the lows in your career, when you've called me and said, hey, listen, I'm making a career change. I'm really kind of frustrated with what's going on. Same thing with me to you. Um, you know, there was a time where I was at kind of just rock bottom low. I, I just never been hit that hard before. Uh, you were one of the first people I talked to. Um, and from that, something really beautiful happened, right? Uh, so, and again, we'll, we'll tie that in as we make our way through, you know, the, the journey of my life as, a, as the career goes. And real um, quick, sorry to interrupt again, but yeah. when you're talking, feel free to elaborate on like, what, what does the day look like? I mean, what's, what, you can tell them what you've done, but there's a lot of back stuff. Like, or, I mean, you've put in a lot of time to get to where you, you are. 
you know, and people that want to get into apparel or get into something like that, ski equipment, whatever, they need to understand like what the days and hours are like. I mean, things like, is this a nine to five gig? Is this a, is this a job where I have to travel and leave my family? So feel free to kind of articulate or break down like the life behind your career and what it looked like. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's funny, but you you remember the office that we had down in, across the street from Houghton Beach in Kirkland? We we had a we we had rented a big huge building from Ivor Hagel. And Ivor is Ivor of Ivor's fish and chips, right? And and he didn't want to rent the building to us. Okay, and, and we're now we're now kind of a hot little company, and we need to set up a sewing line, uh, and, and and I'm kind of bringing us back. Let's say the year is 19, uh, what would it be? Probably 78, maybe 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 it's 1980. Um, but but we needed to move. We needed space, and and we wanted this building because it was right across the street from Houghton Beach Park in Kirkland. Okay, and I had gotten into windsurfing, right? And if you talk about what the day looks like. Okay, um, we needed to figure out how to get Ivor Hagelin to rent us his building. So I wrote him this letter about us young guys and how we have grown up in Seattle and what it's meant to eat Ivor's clam chowder. And I said, at the end of the day, if you either rent this to us or and I put this little I was very creative with my my uh, pictures, but I put a couple of clams at the bottom snapping. I said, just keep clam. And, and, and that's what pushed it over the top. He ended up renting us the building and. Um, so, so my average day, I would come to work in a pair of shorts, uh, you know, probably not even a t-shirt, uh, no shoes. And I'd spend all my lunchtime windsurfing out in front of that beach, um, ha having fun as usual. And it, so, so let's say back to the serious part of business, kind of through hit and miss, uh, keeping that business alive, we, we, Drew really learned the apparel business. I learned the cutting room. Uh, I learned the design room. I learned how to sell product. We were going to trade shows. We 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 had built and designed our own booth for a trade show. Uh, I I I learned the market, all of the retailers, tons of wholesalers, friends uh, around that Seattle community. I I met. Uh, people in the apparel business, which really kind of shaped what it was I was going to do into the future from this part. I wasn't really making any money. I was just having kind of a lot of fun, right? Uh, at the end of the day, that's why we called it our school of hard knocks. Uh, it, it plays a very important role later for me to know all of the nuances uh, from merchandising to design uh, to uh, sewing, uh, it, I, I'd go back into the uh, sewing room and one of the machines would be broken. I could tear it down, break it apart and put it back together again. And I could actually operate all the all the machines in the factory. Right. Most people that do what I did in my career, which was to be an apparel executive, they don't know all that stuff. So later in life, I, you know, let's just say these were the early years where I was selling expensive clothes to small stores or directly to people. Later in my career, I'm selling cheap clothes to big stores. Okay. I'm a part of a yeah. big company, uh, a much more of a giant corporate profile. Right. But I spent uh, many, 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 many weeks of my life, if you added them all up, probably more than three and a half years of my life was spent in Asia, 
between Hong Kong, China, and so forth. Uh, another probably three and a half, four years of my life, week to week to week, was spent in downtown New York uh, in, in our sales office, right? But when I was in Asia talking to factories uh, and we're negotiating prices and we're talking about adopting a line and they were kind of telling me what I could and couldn't do, I knew already how a cutting room works, how to build a pattern, what's wrong with the sizing, uh, if something was going wrong. And, and they were always confounded by guys like me and crack because how do you guys know that a serger takes three eighths of an inch off of a, uh, off of a seam allowance? And how is it that you know that you grade off of a medium? And, and anyway, uh, we always had this kind of distinct edge and it, it was very helpful in my career. Real but, quick. I mean, yeah. I just think this is really important. I think that you were curious and interested along the way, like you, maybe by necessity, you had to learn these things, but my, my gut is there is something inside you a wanting a curiosity to learn. And then ultimately you use this information in your back pocket in Asia to, you know, get ahead and be, you know, impress these people. But like, that's the thing about people who are super successful at what they do it's like they're not faking it. They're not running a race that they're kind of half-assing it. They're actually really into what they do and they have, and like, that's when you're talking, I'm thinking, man, this is a guy who really liked what he did and, and it shows. And then it actually translates to success as well. So my guess is your early knocks, the years that you started off really helped propel you in the future, maybe faster than, you know, your peers. I, I, how, however it is, you know, before you hit the record button and we, we went live on this podcast, uh, you know, we were thinking about, you know, here I am at 66 years old and we're looking backwards and I don't know how all this happened. And it, I don't, I don't know how one decade leads to the other. And I'm not quite sure why, but when you look at it backwards, it's just so sensible. Uh, and, you know, hopefully I can offer some input to, to give people insight as to how they might want to really shape their career path or, or think, think about things like this. Uh, but you're absolutely right. There's one thing that successful people do. They, they develop a skill set and then they use it. Uh, they polish it, they hone it, they get good at it, and then they use it. And, and then you start to stack more on top of that and more on top of that. Uh, and it might be just being good with numbers. Okay, so real quick, yeah. developing a skill set, but do you think there's anything underneath that, like developing the right skill set that's in alignment with your natural skills and interests, right? Like, I feel like developing a skill set is cool, but when you're developing a skill set around what you love to do, it's a totally different thing. You know, it, it is. Um, there's there's something funny uh, about, you know, if you do what you love, it's never work, you know. Um, but I have done what I've loved at times in my life and hated it. I've hated the job. And, and it's simple. Uh, I've done stuff that looks to me like this could be such a drag. And I ended up just getting, having a blast doing it. And, 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 and again, doing what you love is great. But there's something about working with good people. There's, it's like going to high school every day. Uh, you like the guy you're next to. The boss is a cool guy. 
Um, there's something very generous uh, in the relationship between you and the company that you're working with. Um, and if you're thinking about me, if you go back into those early years, those years that I'm making ski wear, I was learning a lot. I became very successful in terms of creating something that was popular uh, in, in a marketing sense. Um, in apparel, one of the things that everybody wants, they want sell through. They want, they want their product to go in onto the retail floor and sell and sell quick. Uh, that, that, that is the most desired thing. Calvin Klein, Ralph Lauren, they spend millions of dollars in marketing to create a demand for their brand. Okay. We did that without knowing what we were doing. Um, I would deliver three or four boxes into a Nordstrom store. Okay. It would disappear in a day. That's how in demand the product was that I was making. They would carry a, uh, a legal pad and there would be pages and pages of names. And there's a waiting list just to get one of my jackets. Right. So this was unheard of. And at the time, I didn't really understand how special it was because when my career a later evolved into selling cheap clothes for big stores, I was never able to capture that lightning in the bottle quite that way again. I did a little bit at times, okay? Uh, but something very, very special happened. And I would say that that success did something for me and the group of guys that I worked with. Um, we became credible. Uh, other companies started to say, hey, come to work for me. Uh, we want what you've got. Uh, could you do that again over here, right? And, you know, and so I, that, that's kind of what happened next. And, and if, if I were to kind of summarize this kind of the ski wear thing, which called the first 10 years of my apparel background, uh, it was successful. The company was valuable. Uh, the partnership collapsed because of a conflict of a lot of personalities. And it, it's your typical business story. One guy's lying about another guy and whatever else. And anyway, anyway, it, it fell off the cliff. Um, I ended up leaving that company uh, in a way that was very hurtful. Okay. Crack did too. Um, and I don't want to get into it because everybody involved, I mean, super, <laughs> really, really, uh, good shape with, you know, okay. They're, they're, they're my friends. Yeah. So Drew, is this, uh, because we have time, but we don't have tons of time, but I really wanted to touch on, and I'll let you articulate this, but I, the fact that you put in all this time and it's really interesting too, just so you know, if you're thinking about apparel, you, it could be a very different experience by the way, based on the brand or the company, whether it's a, a huge brand and you got to play it safe and it's all about the numbers versus a small brand where you may have more leeway to be creative. Uh, and then also the thing that's coming out is all the different skill sets that can be part of the apparel industry. So you don't, you know, you might be an introvert, but you love design or you're super creative. So you don't have to, you know, I mean, there's probably A to Z, it runs the gamut. But what I want to get, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about or have you talk to my audience about is, you know, like for me, like I, I've realized how important being self-sufficient is, like not having to rely on a company, like being able to make a living on my own without any other intervention. And, you know, people in apparel can latch on to a large corporation that's super sexy, you know, whether it's like Nordstrom or whatever, 
But there's a reality too of big corporate politics. And I don't know how you want to, I think it's important for the audience to know that, you know, there is, it's not the negative, but you might spend 30 years of your life bleeding to help a company and then you show up and you're out of a job. You know, and I would say to you, because you are a self-starter, you have always kind of had that independence. Um, I, I appear to be that but what what is it about a big corporation that bugs us? You know, where 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 do they become the big boogeyman, the monster, the monster? You know, they have thousands of employees. Why do we fear them? What's wrong with working for a big company? Uh, you know, to me, it's political, uh, and and the it's almost like success breeds something yucky in management, something kind of ugly, something something that is um, de- a little bit demoralizing to others, right? Now, picture a corporation that you're going to work for uh, that is extremely successful. There's never a worry about the banking, the warehouse, uh, any sort of legal issues, right? And your boss and your your the, the contemporaries that you have that you're working with are awesome. It's a blast. You know, I, I got to tell you, there's there's something about it is is that if you're out interviewing for a job, um, you want to make sure that you do your part as far as a being being interviewed. You know, you're you're going to basically want to make a good showing for yourself, but there should be a second agenda interview that company, get to know what the inner workings are behind the scenes, because it could be a small corporation or big corporation. But if that place is a fun place to work and people love it, okay, there's a, you know, uh, there's something to be said for it. And, and, and here's why I mentioned that, Dirk. When, when the apparel, when my, when my ski wear thing came to an end, okay, uh, it was a little bit like, you know, we were in a garage band and we had some success and our, we got signed to a record label and, 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 and we, we got going and people listened to our stuff or they bought our products and we got good at it. Uh, but it was time for the band to break up. It just was. And uh, um, it felt better to be done with it. Okay. It, it, we, we'd out, we, I, I'd outlived my usefulness. So what came up next for me was a job with a big corporation. Okay. Um, I got going around a little bit and I got offered a job and it's kind of a cute story. Um, uh, There was, there was a guy in Seattle and he was, he was an extremely successful guy. I actually worked for this man uh, for a while when I was young at a company called Britannia Sportswear. And this company was headed up by Walter Schoenfeld and Dick Lentz in Seattle. So Dick, uh, was a mentor. He he was this iconic super figure in the apparel business. He was a badass. Okay, and so now I'm out of reason. Uh, he knows who I am. I've 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 been over at his house and bird bird dog and his daughters and stuff. And and um, I said, hey, I got an idea for an apparel company. Okay, and and he says, well, uh, and he and by the way, he was very successful. He was rolling, and I said, I, I think you should hear about it. 
And he goes, yeah, okay, how, how, can you come in? You want to pitch me on something? I said, yeah, I want to pitch on something. He says, well, bring, bring, bring in your show and show me on Monday. And it was Friday. And I had nothing. I, I just said it. So that night I went and grabbed Crack, who was working for Pacific Trail at the time. Another guy who was this iconic figure was Larry Munger. And Crack was working for Larry. And I said, you got to help me. What I got to come up with a presentation. I'm going to pitch Dick on Monday. And uh, anyway, so I talked crack into, and we spent all weekend working on some storyboards and whatnot. And and I went into his office and and we pitched him on a, on an apparel line concept, which was active that that was out of the spirit of the ski business, but it would be taken into more of an import type of a vibe. Okay, and it would be done more in a department store and a box store type of a price point. Okay. Now, now I'm kind of starting to lean into that selling yeah. cheap clothes to big stores. Anyway, so um, we walked in there on Monday morning and um, he's such a cool guy. He just loved young people with ideas and energy. And he said, OK, you guys, here's the deal. Um, we're going to be leaving for Paris the following Monday. Meet me at the airport. I said, OK, done. Shook hands and out the door. And Crack's looking at me like, dude, I what I, I'm working for a whole other company. I, I said, no, no, you're not, not anymore. You and, and so so that was the next story. So so I grabbed that original partnership, uh, Drew and Crack. We kept we got the band back together again, and now we're rolling. And and now something very cool happened, Dirk, because this is now going more into a corporate thing. This company has got Chinese partnership. There's a lot of capital dropping up. But here's the difference. I didn't have to be a jack of all trades. I knew all that stuff, but I got to do what I did best. And what I really did best was sales. You know, I, I like to be the front man out in front of a company talking about all this great stuff we're doing. Uh, I, could, I could talk about a concept. And, and now what I was able to really focus on rather than changing the needle or the thread in the sewing machine was I got into my... Uh, uh, something popped in my head, which was really more of a marketing genius. You know, when I found my zone of genius, it was that. Um, I would come up with a big idea. Uh, three times a year, we would launch a line and, and we would want some sort of very special theme to springboard off of. And big ideas, that's a term that's used on Madison Avenue in New York. Big companies use it. And, and what it is, it's an overarching idea uh, that generates enthusiasm, uh, it, it, it creates a lot of motivation, but mostly it gets everybody moving the same direction at the same time towards a common goal. And, and so once again, this is one of the things that I spend all my winter time doing right now for this snow sports program is generating big ideas. We'll, we'll get to that before we tie things up. But anyway, we're off and running uh, and uh, Crack is having a ball and I'm having a blast. And for probably the next eight years, we just had the time of our lives. We we it, it was like we got blown out of a canyon, a cannon, right? All, all of this experience and all of this, and it just worked. And there's a big difference. Now we're making money. Okay. And you know, at six o'clock at night, I'd go out in the parking lot, get in my car, turn on the car, turn on the radio, and I'd turn off the business. I didn't need to worry about the status of my bank loan. Uh, I didn't need to worry about the fact that I've got somebody that's disgruntled, uh, that's threatening to sue me or something like that. You know what I mean? That was not my problem. W what I was there to do uh, was, was to basically generate enthusiasm and sales 
and 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 put this new brand on the map, right? So, yeah. real quick, real quick, I just want to make sure I'm following you, and we we've got about 10, 12, 15 minutes. So there's a couple questions I ask each guest that I want to make sure I have enough time for you um, to ask. But so um, I, I don't know if I'm misreading you, but I want to make sure I'm following you. So are you talking about like the reality of when you go work for a bigger corporation, you don't have to worry about A to Z because you're running the business. Now you could just pick your lane. You're in the sales side of it. And it's I think what I would, if, if I'm right, I want people to pick up on this because the idea of owning a company, running it is sexy and it's exciting to think you're like, but with that, there's a lot of risk and there's a lot of baggage and there's a lot of, you know, the clock never stops at 10 o'clock on the weekends, right? But then if you want to have just a, a very defined career and you don't want to worry about A to Z, you just want to worry about N and M and N or whatever. You you experienced that as well in the sales job because you didn't have to worry about payroll or you know all the other thing recruiting. You just did what you did. Is am I reading you? You're reading me. Yeah. And, okay. And, you know, there, it's it. it I, I never worked harder in my life, if I'm being honest. Uh, but I guess I had uh, because I could I could pick my lane, and it wasn't. I, I was really able to focus at what came natural to me, uh, but. You know, you find yourself, and and I'll start to fast track this because this job basically is what I did for the next thirty years. Differently, I, I I designed and sold jeans and related separates and uh, fashion collections, and spent a lot of time um, adopting lines and building brands. I think I branded more than seven different companies uh, during the next thirty years, uh, and and real significant stuff. Um, Hey, real quick, did you do the Squire Shop uh, tank top that went diagonally over the shoulder? Was that you? No, no. That was a big deal, by the way, when I was in yeah. junior high. I had, yeah. I don't know what happened to Squire Shop, but uh, no, I don't, I don't mean to interrupt you. It was owned by a guy named Styles. It was a cool store. Um, you know, yeah. when you get around apparel guys from Seattle yeah. and you start talking about retailers that used to be there that aren't anymore, yep. uh, it, it's a, it, that, that industry is really been flipped upside down uh, a couple of times so well you you mentioned uh munger and i i'm friends with his son and i know you know him yeah. as well mm -hmm. uh who was actually part of our skiing back in the day yeah. um i didn't mean to cut you off but i'm going to just kind of tell you so one of the things i really want to make sure we don't miss out on and then we can go back and is i want to make sure that people are watching this right now and and honestly if they've never met you you have all this energy, you've got all this experience. It's kind of intimidating, I would think, like, oh my God, this guy is like up here. I want you to drop some advice to somebody to kind of help them out. I mean, if they do want to get into apparel, maybe just general advice on, you know, if you are going to go down this road, here's some things to think about, good and bad. And then I also want to touch on two questions I always ask people are, if you could start over and do it again, you know, it's kind of a hard question, but you have all this knowledge, knowing what you know now, what would you do different? And then I'll save the last question for the end. Sure. Um, but advice, I mean, that's what people are tuning in. They're trying to figure stuff out. Okay, and, uh, you know, a couple yeah. of things. Okay, so, you know, Dirk, I never would have said this a decade or two ago, but there's something very powerful about setting a goal. 
And I mean, don't just set it, write it down on a piece of paper and pin it up on your mirror where you look at it every day. Uh, it, it, and, you know, if because this there was a very important event in my life, OK, which was at the end of this 30 year run of being in the apparel business, um, 2007 hit. Uh, Lehman Brothers crashed, uh, the market went upside down, the stock market crashed, real estate values went down, and 30 million guys like me lost their job. Um, there wasn't a month <coughs> that I wasn't approached by a recruiter. You know, I've been to the Nike campus four times. I, I, I've just, I've, I've been recruited a lot. I was a, I was a very sought after executive, okay? Now it's over. I, I sent out 200 letters uh, looking for a job, people I knew, uh, I never heard back on any of them. So I, I was, I was screwed. I got one kid going into college, another kid in high school. I'm providing for a family, and um, and I was really down. And and you and I were talking quite a bit. You actually helped boost my career there. I, I made a career shift, and 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 was I was too young to retire. But this is the story. A guy came along and, and he was a very good friend of mine. He says, describe for me your perfect day. I said, Dude, I, I got to get a job. I can't think about perfect days. You know, I, I got, <coughs> I mean, I, he goes, no, 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 no. Put all that aside for a second. If it could be anything, what would it be? I said, took all the junk out of my head. I cleared the mechanism and I said, okay, well, I would live in Sun Valley. Idaho, where I love. It's my favorite place on the planet. I would probably become a ski instructor again, which is what I did in high school. You know, this is kind of funny how life has a circular thing. And I just, I just really love it. I love interacting with people. And um, I would, uh, I would own a home. And I think I would be just south of town. So I have access to Haley and Ketchum, right? And, uh, you know, basically what I do is I get up every day and go screw off. Now, what's funny, Dirk, is you sit here and talk to me today. That's exactly what I do every day. Uh, and, and, it, and it started in 2007 when I actually set that. And because I actually wrote that out and this guy reminded me of it over and over again. He's a mentor of mine. Um, somehow it ended up coming to be. Um, it's very, very powerful. So. What we're now getting into is the inner psyche and almost the spiritual nature of a human being. We talk about our wives. And we sit here and talk like we're Billy Big Pants. Yeah, I've got this, I got that, I got this much in the bank. Hey, hey, I couldn't do any of this without her. There's one other thing, too. And for fairness to the audience, um, you know, hopefully this isn't a game changer, but I just want you to know uh, I cannot sit here and talk to you or your audience without mentioning I have a deep faith in God. Okay, and so my conviction there, when you see passion or confidence or, you know, this championship mindset that I have, right, I, that, that's where it comes from. I think we're entitled to say that in this day and age, I hope. I think it's great. Yeah, well, you know, I'm a, you know, again, I take, I take orders from a God up above and, and a wife outside that door there, okay. Um, and it 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 gives you a foundation right and and, and it isn't faked it, it's real 
Uh, it, it, it's nothing that I, it, that I pretend exists. I, to me, it's just very real, right? And um, so for your listener, however you find it, okay, if we're thinking about careers, places to uh, go every day and make a living and enjoy the heck out of it, I want you to know I have built many teams. I've hired hundreds of people. Um, I've hired people that haven't worked out and I've hired people that have worked out. And when you're around a team, which you would call a dream team, one that really clicks, it's, it's when it's great. Now, what does that mean? Be confident, find your lane and know enough about it. You said the word smart earlier. Okay. If you can be smart in something, Okay. It might be accounting. Uh, it might be in creativity. Uh, uh, it, it could be possibly in some sort of an organization, you know, like you're an efficiency guy, right? Uh, that, that's how I roll. I'm just, I just like things in good order, right? Um, I don't know how to embrace this, but be confident. Both of my kids. I mean, I used to take Nate, you know, my youngest, my baby. And I would sit him in front of the TV with the VCR and I would play on a loop, John McEnroe blowing up, swearing at the ump, smashing his rackets, tipping over tables. And, and Leah would come up, what are you doing? I said, I'm showing him what it takes to be a champion. She goes, I hate that spoiled, rotten little brat McEnroe. Why are you, don't teach him to be that. Why don't you teach him to be Bjorn Borg? I said, it's real simple. Bjorn Borg has exactly that same attitude in him. You just can't see it. Okay. Um, there, there, there is something about do not settle. Don't let life kick your ass. You kick its ass. Own that. Feel it. That championship mindset, that A game, uh, it, it, is, um, it, it, is, it is vital. Probably... You want to temper it. You don't want to kind of um, be obnoxious. A lot of people don't like Donald Trump. Okay, uh, he he is as obnoxious as you can get. So Stephen Jobs. Just if you know anybody that knows Stephen Jobs, you were in that tech business, right? Um, this guy is was God rest his soul was a monster to work for. But, but there's something about confidence, really having focus on, on what it is you're doing. Does that make sense? Do you think that's helpful, Dirk? I think it's, I mean, I'm thinking about me dancing and yeah. the, <laughs> the confidence I have when I'm out there. No, Drew, this is, I mean, there's no right or wrong script here. This is just mm -hmm. you speaking from the heart. And I think it's awesome. I think confidence, um, you know, there's, it's funny, you, you answered the question I was going to ask you about your dream job. You already answered it. Yeah. Um, I think too, I think the thing about Drew that I want people to see is, you know, you don't have to be a one trick pony. Like if you're an apparel guy, Drew's also, and, and Leah have been very smart about real estate investment, you know, and the things that you don't think about at 24 or 25 is, you know, if you ever read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, the quadrants of like, making money in your sleep, you know, recurring revenue versus having to go to a job to make money. And so I think it's important to realize, like, if you're choosing a career, 
it, it, you know, it, and you want to do other things, which is totally cool. You might want to make sure you have the freedom to do that and the income to do that. So if you're going to work and making a flat salary and you're having to tap in nine to five or whatever, you may not have flexibility, but we don't have to elaborate just since we're kind of running out of time. But the thing about Drew he's done is he's really carved out a, a beautiful life, um, a fun life. He's around people down in Sun Valley that are really cool. And, you know, the cool thing, I mean, he won't say this, but Drew is one of the best skiers you'll ever see. And when you go into an old school ski school system where you have a lot of attitude and people who, you know, think they're skiers, I mean, we always joke, if you can't ski the bumps, you can't ski. But I just, I, I, I just can only imagine when these old school people watch Drew do his thing. They must just think, oh boy. But um, one of the things, Dirk, you know, and, and, you know, as far as skiing goes, you know, um, at, at my age, actually six years ago, I reinvented my whole approach. You knew me as, as, as a kind of a guy that, uh, you know, hair on fire, take that first step, ski like a badass, kick ass. Uh, and, you know, I, I've got a, a whole different approach and, and it's, it's, it's enjoyable because I really feel like I might be even better than I used to be in kind of a different way. Um, but it is very true. You're making a really good point, which is I I'm living a dream life. Yeah. I every day to me is a blessing. Uh, I maybe is one of the few people that, you know, that said if life were to come to an end today, um, I've got I've got no complaints. I, I've lived it right. You want my life. That's my my message to your audience. And it would never have been possible if I wasn't very diligent about saving investing, saving, you know, one of the things that your listeners, your, 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 your audience should know, um, I'll, I'll give you the same advice I give my kids that 401k plan, try to max it out. I mean, really, really it, it, there's not a better way to save money uh, when you're working. Uh, you're probably not going to be offered a pension of some kind. So you got to make your own. That's where that rental house comes into play or that investment. Uh, and it's, it's sketchy doing them. Uh, but they, they, it always pays off later. And we're sitting here today with, uh, we probably own six houses, right? And five of them we rent. Uh, we've been able to, to buy cheap and renovate. And once again, I've got the supermodel wife that isn't afraid to get her, get her knuckles bloody and uh, get, get her knees dirty, climbing under, climbing under a house and fixing a pipe. God, I should have interviewed Leah. Yeah, you you really should. If you really want to know what makes this family click, it's her. Hey. And, you know, Dirk, it's funny because when moving over here, she wanted to get into the retail business. And, uh, you know, kind of it's this great little ribbon cherry on the Sunday, which is to say, you know, I wonder if I could do that first thing, you know, that that ski wear thing again, only this time actually make money uh, with all of that expertise that I've got. And so where I was managing teams, you know, running 50, 60 million dollar companies. Um, I, I, I had teams of design and merchandising, and now we're like a, a, this kind of complex company of two people, her and I, I do all the graphic work. Uh, we print all our own t-shirts and, uh, and, and now business has never been better. So I was trying to figure out, uh, uh, and thank you, Drew, you, you're amazing. And I'm so happy that I was able to get you on. Um, you know, the, the thing you're talking about, like confidence, right? When you were talking about that, I want to end with, because um, I'm always asking Drew, like, who are the best mogul skiers? Like, because I, I always like genius. Like, I, I, I'm really fascinated with people who are at the top of their game. And I was a, I was a good bumper, but, you know, I stopped competing and 
you know, these guys were on a whole different level. Um, and what they do today, I mean, I'm not so I'm impressed with the moguls today, but what I'm really impressed is the aerials they do within the bumps. I think the bumps are too manufactured, but that's a whole different story. But when you're talking about confidence, um, the story about Johnny Mosley, uh, I think it was the Olympics and he knew they had changed the rules. And I think the jump was called dinner roll, but I remember there was an attitude. I felt like when you told me that story about he knew what he was doing, but he was kind of like, screw it. This is who I am. I'm not going to play by the rules. I mean, you got to politi be politically correct sometimes, but I, I hope I'm not butchering this like Tommy boy, but do you know what I'm talking about when he. No, no, you're, you're, you're recapping it beautifully. Okay. Uh, Johnny won the gold medal in 1998. And, and by the way, came. sorry, you think he's the best bumper you've ever seen, right? Johnny Mosley? Yeah. He's the greatest American freestyler for, for reasons that you're stating right now. Uh, the, the, the goat, I got to, I, I'm kind of partial to Mosley, but there's a guy named Jean-Luc Broussard. who's a Canadian. He's a badass dude. And right now the current, I think his name is Woodland, something like that. The guy has won like nearly 80 world cups. He's right behind, uh, um, uh, help me. Um, I don't know. Sorry, I'm, I'm thinking the, the the young lady that just broke English oh. Denmark's record. In, Schifrin in or Schifrin? Yeah, Michaela Schifrin. Yeah. Uh, you know, so they, they were, there was a little bit of a touch and go there that this Canadian bump skier might win more World Cups than her. But, but tell us about the whole, that whole episode. Well, uh, the, the reason Johnny Mosley is this iconic freestyle skier is because freestyle is free. Yeah, it is a kind of a... a, a it was pioneered out of a spirit of let's not be regimented. Let's get out of alpine racing. Let's uh, let's go out and see who the biggest, who the who the baddest badass is on a hill. We'll take the toughest run, uh, and we'll run everybody down it. Whoever's the best gets to win the the Porsche and the five thousand bucks, right? Uh, and and it it from there developed into a televised sport. ABC Wide World of Sports covered the events that we were getting on the PFA World Trophy Tour, um, and then. The, the prize money got big. And eventually this thing started to need to get a little more regimented. And so there were more rules written and, and uh, judges created. And, and uh, anyway, a little bit of uniformity to the, the courses. Uh, anyway, so uh, eventually this sport found itself into the Olympics. And Johnny Mosley ended up winning a gold medal in 1998. And in 2002, the Olympics came to Salt Lake. And Johnny Mosley would have won a gold medal, his second one, without a question. But he decided, and, and there's a whole documentary on this, what it took for him to get on the World Cup, to get a stance, to make the Olympic team, to get right back into this again. Uh, because what he really wanted to do was he wanted to get back into this expressive freestyle part of skiing. Uh, so what he did was he conformed. He did it their way. Uh, he, he, his, 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 his aerials were done in a way that were, let's say acceptable, right? But in his Olympic run, he broke out and he sacrificed a gold medal. He ended up not getting on a podium. He ended up with fourth place. And that's when he launched the dinner roll. It's a, basically it's a 720 done off axis. And basically th those guys like us that are the pioneers of the sport went, okay, there, there is the ultimate badass. It's almost like his gift to the sport, which is to say this thing really should be 
always expressive and free uh, and and let, let's not let it get so you know staunchy and uptight i'd say authentic like to me there's a parallel with careers and you can play it safe you know mm-hmm. but i think if you can be brave enough to to be who you are and go for it and i know that sometimes you got to play by the rules we all have bills and, and families to raise but I, when I heard that story, I mean, that's why I love Tin Cup, the movie, you know, when yeah. he took him 10 and he finally knocked it in. But I, I just love that in terms of a mindset. And it's interesting. You're talking about freestyle and that's who you are too. I mean, you've always been free. And I think when you're free, you fly, you shine. We're, we are blessed to live in, in a country that's, that endorses free. And, and, you know, when you think about conforming, and again, I would, advise your audience you know to, to to basically put on a professionalism okay that will take them a long way in life but be yourself right dirk um if if you meet some little robotic guy with all kind of a recorded answer um I'd much rather be interviewing somebody or getting into business with somebody that was colorful, uh, that was real, that was authentic, you know? That's amazing advice. I mean, that's who you should be, folks. Be yourself because it's like dating. If you date the wrong way, you're going to end up with the wrong person. Be yourself. And Drew, I I loved it, man. I um, Before I kind of end this, is there anything that's on the tip of your tongue that you felt like you wanted to say? Or do you feel pretty good? You know, I, I hope it was okay. Um, you know, I don't look at my life as anything super special. Uh, and and out the other side of my mouth, I tell my friends all the time, you want my life, right? Um, I, I would, I guess what I would like to do in, in to finish it up and summarize is thank you very much, Dirk. You're a, you're a special guy and a special friend. Uh, and again, it's a reminder that, your career and what what you do to make money is one thing, but you know, cherish those things that are important. Uh, really hold on to friendships. You know, an, another little tiny piece of advice. Let, let's just say somebody's lost out know what they're going to do, and they're they're going to go to work as a barista for Starbucks. Is there anything wrong with that? No, not at all. But do this: you're going to be interacting every day with probably hundreds of people. And over the course of a week, thousands. And over the course of the week, maybe tens of thousands. Make a contact list. Make Be friendly. Get to know people. Uh, share and exchange contact information. Build yourself a database of people. Because those that is, is where maybe your next career move could really serve you. You, you might find yourself as an insurance salesman or something like that. And you might have 15, 16,000 people in a database that you can send some email marketing to. Yeah. And, people- and, and it isn't done pretentiously. It's just that, you know, this idea of, of connecting and, and making connections. Yeah. And like in my business, I, they always say the people with the most friends wins. I mean, yeah. it's all about contacts. I mean, if you're in a, in a business that rewards, mm-hmm. you know, having relationships. So, I'm going yeah, to end you this. Know, you, you mentioned Larry Munger and Dick. Yeah. I, I could never have had the career that I had without those two guys. Uh, and they, they are just um, iconic people that I was fortunate enough to meet. Uh, and um, 
you know, of course they inspired me, but at the same time, they nurtured me. Uh, those guys both became very close personal friends of mine. So, and they were very helpful. Yeah, no, you've got a lot of people that you, I mean, you know, a lot of folks, but I think that's another way to think about it is you just never know which contact's going to propel you, you know, maybe hire you or connect you to somebody that hires you. So um, don't take that for granted. Drew, thank you so much um, for the time. Are you done skiing for the day? I'm done for the day. I'm completely spent. You're not, you couldn't believe what it was I was up there skiing today. I'm like this at the end of March. I love it, man. What that's success to me. I mean, you, you're saying you said something downplaying, but like when I consider success, you know, I look at your life and I think that's success. So congratulations. Thank you so much. And we'll talk soon. I love you, Dirk. Thank you very much. Thank you, buddy.